Welcome to episode 31 of the Policy Options Podcast. I'm Alex Shadid. In August of 2016, Canadians were sent a chilling reminder of the threat posed to us by domestic and international terrorism when the RCMP intercepted and neutralized a Canadian by the name of Aaron Driver, who was literally on his way to carrying out a terrorist attack. To law enforcement officials, the Aaron Driver case was symptomatic of the growing ability of terrorist groups, such as the so-called Islamic State and Al-Qaeda, to propagate their radical ideology online and inspire individuals to carry out attacks in their home countries. Aaron Driver isn't the only Canadian to have been radicalized by groups they've encountered online. In the period between January 2015 and the time of Aaron's attack alone, 16 others were charged with terrorism-related offenses in Canada. That's why a report published by Public Safety Canada last year listed domestic violent extremists who could be inspired to carry out an attack, as opposed to extremists coming into the country, as the principal terrorist threat to Canada. So what can be done to counter the threat of violent extremism in Canada? Nadia High is a PhD student at Carleton University's School of Journalism and Communication who studies how terrorist organizations communicate their message with Western audiences. I caught up with Nadia via Skype to learn more about the issue. So joining me now on the podcast is Nadia Hai. Nadia is a PhD candidate at Carleton University's School of Journalism and Communications. Nadia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So you study a lot about the messaging tactics of groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda. What would you say is the most effective strategy utilized by these groups to recruit and radicalize individuals? So in terms of, um, I mean, radicalization itself, I mean, it's more than just the media messages. I mean, often with different paths of radicalization, it starts off with a small group um, of individuals and it's eventually um, enhanced through online type material or communication. But um, one really interesting method I found in my work, so my previous research was on Al-Qaeda's sort of hip online English language magazine, Inspire. Mm -hmm. And one technique I found really interesting was how they would kind of align their cause with other, I guess, traditional progressive causes. So saying things like the environment or anti-globalization or you know, Palestinian human rights, um, those types of movements. Uh, Do you think that there's a big effort to speak to Western popular culture uh, when they're they're trying to do this stuff, to to have that element of relating to individuals? Um, I think so, particularly with Al-Qaeda's communication. They would try to kind of take on this sort of youthful, like, counterculture. So, I mean, I just remember one magazine had... They, the magazine regularly featured poems, but one of them was actually written kind of like a rap. It wasn't like the best. It was it was a bit cringeworthy. I mean, like lines like "bashing and a slashing is our fighting fashion," but like, <laughs> but I think the point uh, is, it's like they're trying to kind of um, take in sorts of um, you know Western type pop cultural references, and it's kind of interesting. Um, a lot of the authors of um, Inspire magazine were Americans. Um, so there was Samir Khan, who is a grew up in the States, um, went over and joined Al-Qaeda in Yemen. Same with Anwar al-Awlaki. Both of them were killed in a drone strike in 2011, but they were very much behind that. Um, it was a very interesting. One of the magazine articles was talking about, you know, the afterlife and, of course, makes a reference to the Energizer bunny. Like it can t- <laughs> So it's like a way of, you know, using cultural references that are, you know, familiar to that audience. How formal would you say is the outreach process? Because groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS are rather decentralized in their internal structure. 
Um, as far as like um, recruitment goes, I'm not entirely sure how you know the sort of top-down recruitment works. Um, I've done a lot of work uh, around um, you know Amardath Amarsingham and Lauren Dawson's big study on um, you know from interviewing people who have gone over to um, Syria and Iraq, and what they found was it would often start with like a group of friends who kind of I guess be self-radicalized or have that sort of um, interest in joining the movement and you know from then they kind of reach out online to other people who may be over there or who kind of help people go over to that region so it's a combination of online and offline yeah, or um, I guess it was Mark Sageman in 2004 when he was studying terrorism networks he said one of the most important things is um I guess the group of guys phenomenon often people are more likely to join if it's like a friend or you know family members involved. Mm-hmm. So would you say in terms of uh, how people get radicalized and how the whole process goes about, it's less of individuals somewhere else speaking out and putting up messages, which one person says, wow, that's really appealing. I'm just going to go join. Or is it more of like kind of like a, a community aspect? Is there that element of participating and being a part of something that makes you feel uh, yeah. I guess that that draws you further into it by not only, uh, I guess, reading similar, uh, I guess, scripts or, or reading similar online magazines, but also, I guess, actively adding to the collective narrative. Yeah, for that, what's really interesting is like with radicalization itself, most of the literature will tell you that there's so many different paths to radicalization. There's no one um, type of person who's likely to get radicalized, but it's kind of interesting too, particularly with the sort of evolution, um, the creation of like, um, you know, online media, um, it is that um, it kind of affords certain functions. So, for example, people are able to participate in, um, you know, creating materials or, um, you know, translating stuff. There's a term by Jarrett Brackman, who is a scholar who studied Al-Qaeda in 2009, where he, he, he referred to people, this type of group, as jihadists. Mm-hmm. Jihadists are people who just get involved with the movement strictly online. So there's this sort of, um, um, not really out fighting, but just creating materials, writing blogs, graphic design. And it's interesting how there is this emphasis on media production or what they call a quote-unquote media jihad. So this idea that, you know, half of, it was a quote, I can't remember which ideologue said it, but like half of jihad is media is like mm-hmm. what are um, they're saying. So even in an issue of Inspire and there was a whole chapter on how you can help all Malahan Media or the company that creates Inspire. So just like the importance of creating, um, you know, media creation, as well as you know how how to help and how this contributes to itself. So are certain acts considered in higher regard than other acts? So for example, you know, I guess participating by writing a blog versus actively actively going over to Syria and participating in a real life conflict. I mean, they always like. What was really interesting, though, is like I guess as as opposed to like you know Al Qaeda and in Inspire, where there's this emphasis on doing a lone wolf attack over going over and joining them, and because joining them was like a bigger liability for them, um, they saw the lone wolf attack as more superior, like a 
better thing to contribute to the movement or more superior because it's more of a psychological war. So attacking the enemy at home is much more effective for them. Whereas at least earlier on, around 2014, when we, with um, ISIS, there is an emphasis of hijra or migration to the Islamic State. And um, conducting an attack on your own is maybe less important than that. But I'm sure that they may change that narrative a bit more as they lose territory in terms of like what to do with recruits in the West. The government has often made the distinction between inspired attacks and directed terrorist attacks. How do you really draw the line between the two when a group like Al-Qaeda is so decentralized and you don't really have that, uh, I guess, it's difficult to tell what really inspired it or how the process came about for that led to someone committing an attack? Well, I think with inspired attacks, it's more like, I mean, for example, the Parliament Hill attack. He was somebody who had tried to go over. He had no training by ISIS or, all, or the group he claimed to represent with ISIS. Um, it, you know, he looked at stuff online, but um, there wasn't any sort of training or financing from the group itself. So that might distinction, whereas, let's say, some of the attacks in Paris or Brussels, these were individuals who actually went over to Syria and were trained and then came back. So, um, more inspired attacks is usually somebody who just decides to conduct a random attack and then create some sort of affiliation to the group, Um, almost like free publicity for the group. So, often when you know, ISIS or Al-Qaeda is uh, telling individuals to conduct an attack. They're often telling them, remember, to declare who it's on our behalf or mm. for this. So on a personal level, would you say that a lot of these people are simply kind of looking for a justification for their cause, sort of try to put their, their violent acts, to sort of rationalize their violent acts behind an ideology? Yeah, it's... it's so in a sense, like how the violent act kind of rationalizes what they're mm-hmm. doing, I guess. Rather than just being sort of a murderer, you're, uh, in this case, you're representing sort of a cause. In- yeah, it's interesting. You're kind of representing a cause or you're a martyr. Um, what's really interesting, too, in um, a lot of work, particularly um, some work looking at new religious movements or the study of new religious movements or what people might colloquially call the cults, um, some of the, you know, some people have talked about looking in, into that area of literature in order to understand how people join certain groups. And one interesting aspect coming from that body of work is to kind of take the um, sort of personal, uh, I guess, religious views of the individual involved, regardless of whether, of how orthodox or not they are. They don't really care if it represents the true, quote unquote, version of the religion. But, um, yeah, I think in this case, they often see themselves as martyrs, where their death is somehow, I guess, contributing to the group. Um, there's heavenly rewards as well as, like, rewards for the movement itself, so the recognition for that. Um, what about, like, the types of people that are getting recruited by a lot of these organizations? Is there Are they typically coming from a lower-income bracket, middle-class, educated, uneducated? How would you describe the, I guess, typical recruit? 
Well, that's the funny thing is like there is no typical recruit. What's kind of interesting is like it's so different because you might have individuals like, you know, Damien Clermont from Calgary a while back, someone who, you know, struggled with health issues, dropped out of high school, but eventually became radicalized. You have individuals also, I guess, also from Calgary, like Salman Ashrafi, who was educated, um, had a good job, seemed to be fairly well adjusted. And it's interesting how it varies from country to country, too. Um, so, for example, the recruits coming from England tend to be better educated than some of the recruits that come from places like the Netherlands, who are typically criminal background or lower class. So I guess there is no one typical recruit. So would you say that there's elements of Canadian society that make us, as a country, more prone or less prone to having our, I guess, Canadian citizens become radicalized? For example, speaking to, I guess, multicultural um, inclusion, uh, education system, healthcare, is there anything in particular about us as Canadians that, that, I guess, separates us from the United States or the UK in terms of our proneness to an attack? In terms of what terrorist groups tend to, I guess, what kind of fuels terrorist sort of propaganda or their, their own um, movement is often examples of like non-inclusion or exclusion or intolerance so for example there is a magazine in i mean an article in i guess isis magazine talking about you know the what they called erasing the gray zone so this idea that you can't be muslim and live in the west because you know the west is basically the complete opposite of that. You can't really practice your religion. So if you come, you know, if you come across things like, you know, veil bans or, um, you know, I guess the recent Muslim ban, it's all, almost like a way of kind of, um, you know, it's kind of like handing the justification for the movement. So this kind of supports the idea that, um, you know, you cannot be Muslim and live in the West um, or the West is fighting a war against Islam. So do you mind speaking to some of the, I guess, efforts and programs being carried out by the Canadian government to counteract, I guess, radicalization, to counteract the messaging that a lot of these groups are using on social media? Yeah, for sure. Um, so as far as I know, there was um, the Kanishka Project, which is through Public Safety Canada, that was funding more community-based initiatives, so kind of stopping radicalization before it becomes a law enforcement type I mean, a situation where you have to bring it to law enforcement. Um, there is also a project that was part of called Project Communitas. So this was also part of the Kanishka project, partially done through Carleton's Center for the Study of Islam, as well as the um, Canadian Council of Muslim Women. So this was the initiative promoting community resilience. So youth leaders from different faiths, different backgrounds came together and kind of got training on how to kind of build community resilience. So people are more comfortable talking about these issues and kind of working to counter some of those ideas. What about the role of social media organizations? A lot of people have been saying, you know, uh, I guess companies like Twitter and Facebook should be more active in terms of making sure that these kinds of messages don't end up in people's timelines. But at the same time, they don't want to be the ones, I guess, suppressing 
are being the ones that decide what is free speech and what is terrorist speech. What do you think the roles, uh, what role can private companies play in counteracting the messages of these organizations? Hard to say. I know a lot of um, organizations are trying to counter these organizations by taking down different accounts. But one interesting thing that kind of happens, um, I guess, in one study, I believe it's I'm gonna I'm thinking of when he was talking about uh, Twitter communities, you know, supporting ISIS, is often if someone's account is taken down, that is a way um, that's almost like a prestigious thing because being taken down or silenced um, is a way of showing, yeah, I was speaking the truth while so I was taken down. So it's kind of interesting how censorship kind of gives them some sort of legitimacy. But I guess it has to somehow go beyond taking down accounts as well. I mean, when you take one down, thumbs up. Yep. Uh, some people have floated the idea of uh, discrediting terrorist groups' portrayal of the facts on the ground, both, I guess, uh, at home and abroad. Where yeah. do you stand on something like that? Is it trying to, is because there's obviously people are a little bit worried of the fact that, you know, when the government's putting out messaging and all that kind of stuff, it could be interpreted as, I guess, propaganda or counter propaganda. Uh, yeah. I guess working against people's freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, but at the same time, it's functioning as. Uh, something important that's discrediting, uh, I, I guess, a lot of the alternative facts, quote, quote, yeah. unquote, that uh, terrorist groups are using to recruit individuals. Yeah, because I know there is a, um, I think it's in the United States, it's a state department called the Center for, the Center for Strategic Counterterrorism Communications. I guess they did launch a campaign, I think it was called Think Again, in a way, or the other way around. But um, yeah, they would often, I guess, for lack of a better word, kind of troll terrorist groups by kind of presenting like the actual, you know, um, yeah, presenting, I guess, other perspectives on how, you know, the damaging effects of the group. So I'm not sure entirely sure how effective that is. I guess, you know, if someone's quote unquote radicalized, they may not you know, it may be hard to convince them, especially if it's coming from a government as well. Um, I know there was another campaign a couple years ago, too, with um, Muslims from around the world kind of counteracting the idea that what ISIS is doing is like, quote unquote, like, real Islam. By it's, They started a hashtag called Not In My Name as a way to kind of talk about uh, what ISIS was doing. So kind of taking away from that religious legitimacy as well. But it's kind of interesting too, it's, I think it's Olivier Roy um, who talked about regardless of whether like you can present to someone who's radicalized like all these theological arguments, like if they're convinced that this is their, you know, this is religiously legitimate, they're just going to do it anyway. So um, another, I guess, point of view, this was another uh, event put on last year by the Center for the Study of Islam, um, was talking about this idea of religious literacy as a way to counteract um, some of the more radical or extremist ideas. So this is the idea of looking at religious views in terms, um, look at Islam, for example, in terms of its historical, cultural context, so looking at a certain passage, and then figure out what was going around, 
going on at the time, historically or culturally, kind of making those distinctions and just using examples of, you know, pluralism in the past. So the, how, you know, this so-called West and the Islamic world actually did you know, collaborate in some ways or mixed in during history. So kind of counteracting that narrative of us versus the West or the West versus Islam. Because like often you can see, I mean, on I guess the other side of things, the lack of religious literacy, religious literacy kind of um, makes people seem that, you know, we are in this sort of like, that flash of civilization that, oh, you see that passage in the Quran, that must mean that all Muslims believe that. So again, on that side, you know, that kind of shows that lack of or the lack of knowledge of its sort of cultural context. So I think, um, I guess, extra knowledge or historical slash cultural context could also be helpful in terms of people understanding how these certain religious concepts work. And lastly, um, this, is, this is a question specifically uh, in regards to the Islamic State. Um, yeah. A major part of their sort of, I guess, online image and branding is the yeah. fact that they are a state. But yeah. as the, I guess, the offensive, the ground offensive in both Syria and Iraq is becoming more successful and less and less territory is being held by the Islamic State, how do you think their branding and their messaging online is going to change when, I guess, you're dealing with a post-state Islamic state? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I think they might probably focus more on, I'm assuming, probably more on homegrown attacks or, you know, lone wolf attacks, like attack where you are. Um, I think they'll still kind of imagine themselves as a, a sort of network because they still have groups that they've affiliated themselves with, like in Libya, as well as in the Sinai region, as well as I think in Af um, West Africa as well, so Boko Haram. So even though these are like individual insurgencies that just took up their brand, they might kind of stress that more as a way of saying that they still have these kind of spheres of influence, I guess. And um, what's interesting too is they changed around their propaganda a bit because. Um, um, the name of their magazine is Dabiq, which is a town in Syria, which is part of the sort of end of days, like apocalyptic prophecy that this big battle is supposed to happen in Dabiq. So recently this summer, they lost control of that region. So now they've changed the name of their magazine to Rumia, so like meaning Rome. So part of this apocalyptic prophecy was that, you know, the army of the Islamic State or good would fight against the Romans or evil or the West is how they interpret it. So they've kind of shifted the name of their magazine. They've often, I think the, they've also been working to change around the prophecy as to where they are. So, okay, well, this isn't happening yet because these other things have to happen. So it happens with a lot of millenarian groups. Um, you know, they you know, that often when the apocalypse doesn't happen, they have to kind of regroup and figure out, you know, what needs to happen. So I'm guessing there'll be a lot of that as well. Well, Nadia, thank you very much for joining me today on the podcast. Yep, thank you. 
If you want to learn more about Nadia's work on terrorism and radicalization, we've provided a link to one of her recent articles in the podcast description. Policy Options Podcast is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, and your favorite podcast app, so don't forget to subscribe. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.